Today, we're talking to Valentin, co-founder and CTO at Fingerprint, about turning an open source tool into a business and realizing how finite our time is. You're listening to Joel Beasley, Modern CTO. Hi, Joel. Hey, it's Valentin, correct? Valentin, yes. Did you vote today? I cannot vote. I'm not an American person. Oh, okay. What citizenship do you have? I came from Russia to the States six years ago. America is very slow in like giving citizenship uh, to immigrants. It takes sometimes 10, 15 years. I came here on a work visa, stayed on a work visa for three years. Then I applied for the green card. The green card was approved. And since then I live, I have been living on a green card. Interesting. What's the difference between a green card and citizenship? You cannot vote. That's it? Uh, Travel-wise, with a passport, you can go like to Europe or to certain countries. Like, for example, I'm going to London this week. As a Russian citizen, I needed to apply for the UK visa. If I had the US passport, I I wouldn't need to apply in that situation. Oh, got it. Dude, interesting stuff. What's in London? Oh, it's just some work-related things, some planning, like essentially. We, we have a distributed team, so for some folks, it's easier to travel there than to this United States. That's why we meet there. Nice. Where did you found the company? Oh, the company started like as an open source project. The actual founding... Okay, so the process was... Uh, I first registered in LLC in 2019. All my American life, I lived in Chicago. So I came to Chicago and stayed here. And uh, it's been six years since, I, since I've been living in Chicago. And yeah, the company was started here in Chicago. Very cool. So you started, it was an open source project, fraud detection, and then open source project got popular enough you started offering services. How did the evolution actually happen? It was longer. Yeah, let me explain from the very beginning. Originally, I started the open source projects in 2012. Then it was kind of neglected for one year. I didn't work on that. And then I decided to blog about it and wrote an article on my blog and I posted it to Reddit and it happened in 2013. And the article became popular. It was uh, number one on Reddit, our programming. And uh, there was a lot of feedback and questions. And I then understood that this topic is interesting to developers. So in 2013, I started actually working actively on the open source library and worked on that until maybe 2015 for a couple of years. And then again, I kind of stopped working on that because I didn't have time. And this time uh, I was I was uh, preparing for my uh, immigration to the U.S. Then uh, a couple of years later, I resumed working on the, on the library again. Uh, it was around 2017 and added several more features. And the library, again, like jumped in popularity. Essentially, when you spend time, like engage with developers, answer their questions, uh, resolve issues, the usage goes up. If you neglect the library, if you forget about it, the usage goes down because developers see that the library is not maintained or is abandoned or they think it's abandoned. So the moment I kind of resumed working on it, It became popular again. I saw more and more businesses uh, and developers uh, picking it up and using that. And in 2018, I had an idea, what if I turn it into a commercial product? So I did some tests with a landing page, with some wording on the landing page that collected emails. And uh, this landing page, I linked to it from the GitHub readme and I saw some traffic, some nice traffic to it. And then I collected around 400 emails on that landing page and it was there for several months. And this is when it became like apparent to me that not only there is an interest in the open source library, there is also interesting uh, interest uh, from the developer audience to 
to get a better version, uh, better than the open source, something that is business-oriented, something that integrates well with other platforms, maybe or with cloud providers. So there was definitely interest there because I saw emails from like large companies who asked about features of the commercial product. Uh, they were interested to kind of continue the conversation. And at this time, I thought, I want to try to turn it into a business. So early 2019, in April, I left my full-time job as a developer and started working on it full-time. So registered the domain, registered the LLC, registered like everything. And uh, kind of it went from there. Uh, worked really hard to kind of uh, do early sales, early uh, product development. So yeah, that's the story. Nice. So I think we're always looking for ways to bring value to the audience. And right when you started talking, I thought the topic that we should advertise for this is something along the lines of how you turn an open source project into the business. Yeah. In 600 episodes, we've never had that topic. We've never done a show on like how you do that. And you go about your life and you're using tens, if not hundreds of open source projects within the first couple years of your developer journey. And some of these, you see they they have some different models. Some of them will provide services to where they will write code and enhance and improve the code base privately for, for certain people. They'll That's like one model that I see a lot. Another model that's even, I think, more common than that is they'll host it for you so you don't actually have to host it. And then they'll always apply the latest updates and everything of that nature. So how did you decide like on the model for, for what you're doing. So what is the model and how did you come to that conclusion? The library, let me explain what it does and how I decided on the model. The library performs browser fingerprinting. That's a, an interesting topic because it's very polarized in the industry. The open source library is completely stateless, works in the browser, generates a browser fingerprint and gives you back this fingerprint directly in the browser through the JavaScript, like function call, essentially, you call fingerprint dot give me fingerprint and it gives you the fingerprint. What was apparent after years of working that there is a ceiling of capabilities that I'm unable to uh, kind of hit the ceiling of capabilities with a client side only model. And I needed to have a server side backend that can do a lot more. So I started thinking, what if I add a backend, how it will work, what capabilities I can add uh, to the product. And working on this backend seemed like something that would take a lot of time. And I thought it should be a, a paid product because of how much effort I, I need to invest into building that backend. So when I started thinking about, okay, what kind of like pricing should I have, monetization, I decided it kind of came natural that it's going to be an API call based product. You make an API call, you pay for the API call. But one API call is uh, is too cheap. It's like uh, one-tenth of a cent. So we charge by 1,000 API calls. Our pricing model is like that. When you make uh, 1,000 API calls, you pay $2. This is how the pricing works. And it was very like natural transition from the client-side library to a client and a server kind of hybrid. Because of the server backend, it's much more accurate, secure, the payment is by API calls, very easy to understand. I guess the fact that it was very easy for developers to understand the pricing terms, they were not confused by that. It contributed a lot to like the adoption of, of the Fingerprint Pro. Nice. And so just so I understand, it give you background, I wrote software for 17 years and I did mostly web applications or enterprise type stuff. 
the thing that I'm having trouble with in my head is, first of all, I never had to use this fingerprint stuff. I just didn't do it. What's the goal that it accomplishes? And like, how were people doing it before fingerprint? It accomplishes a very simple idea. Every browser, and later every device, but we started with browsers, every browser should have a unique and permanent ID, like a serial number. Someone uses their browser to access your website, to perform certain activities like logging in, creating accounts, making payments. You want to understand what they did before this user. Did they create other accounts before from that browser? Did they transfer money from that browser? How many signups did they have? So in order to do that, you need to be able to identify that visitor to be able to answer this question. Have I seen this visitor before? And if I have, what do I know about this visitor? And we give that capability by generating that unique and permanent ID. When you use our API, every browser will have this ID. And then it's up to you as a business owner, as a developer, to associate the information that you want with that browser ID. We call it visitor ID. If you care about how many accounts this visitor created in the past, you can store a counter and increment this counter every time an account is created. So you can easily identify mass account registrators, people who register hundreds of accounts. Maybe they do it to influence public opinion or do something else, something else but uh, it's, uh, it's one use case. Another use case, maybe you're uh, doing something like a lot of use cases that we see have to do with uh, money transfers, whether it's cryptocurrency or real money. <laughs> you want to know the history of this browser activity, how much money maybe this person transferred. Is there any like fraudulent activity or potentially suspicious activity going on. What if your service allows to transfer only $1,000 per month for anti-money laundering, like compliance, for example, and this browser actually transferred a lot more. So you need to be able to catch that as well. So it's like a serial number. How businesses or developers did that before, they typically used cookies for that. And cookies worked until browsers started to like tighten the third-party cookie security and essentially block third-party cookies. And this is when the old way of doing things, store, store a unique ID in the cookie stopped working. And this is why a product like ours is helpful in identifying visitors and associating uh, certain facts or metadata with the browser identifier to be able to decide if it's fraudulent or not. Interesting. How are the serial numbers generated? Like what unique information can you use to make it a unique fingerprint? It's just mathematics and statistics. So if you take, let's say, <clears throat> the user agent of that browser or the language of that browser, they're not unique. There are so many people with the user agent of Chrome 107 and uh, language US is English US, for example. But if you add more and more additional signals, we call them signals, you kind of narrow down uh, the haystack. Uh, and the ideal situation is that you narrow down the haystack so much that there is only one browser left in the world that has this combination of signals. It sounds difficult when you consider simple signals, but when you consider like really advanced signals, it's actually possible. So you add browser capabilities, screen size, audio stack sampling, WebGL rendering like uh, artifacts, IP address statistics, network information, TLS fingerprint, TLS crypto analysis that we collect with a handshake and many, many more things that are, some of it is open source, some of it is not open source. So more advanced stuff goes into the proprietary library. 
uh, easier and well-known stuff goes into the open source. But when you combine enough signals, you split that haystack in half so many times that you end up with one person in the haystack or one browser rather. Interesting. Yeah. Once you started getting to, at the first, I was having a hard time figuring it out. And then once you got into like the web geo rendering artifacts and the TLS stuff, I was like, oh, okay, that will narrow it down like quite a bit. Okay. So you've got this um, fingerprint and you answered my question through all of these signals, you can create a unique fingerprint and then you've got this repository of information about that browser, things it's done. And, and so do you make any assertions or do you just act as like a data store and people can query it and determine their own insights? We separate each account into its own like isolated system and uh, you can query your own data. Uh, you cannot query data that uh, someone else submitted. And we do that by giving every subscription their uh, public and private API key pair. So you can use your API key, uh, public API key to write information and the private API key to read the information back using our server API. And this is where the we check whether the data that you want to query belongs to you or not. Oh, interesting. So is the fingerprint, like I have a browser open right now that has notes about the show, right? right. And that browser, would it have a different fingerprint if it was in my account than in your account? Or does it have one global fingerprint and we only see data based off of like our ability to some filter? It would have a different fingerprint for various reasons. As a human, you tend to personalize your browser a lot without realizing that, whether you do it consciously or subconsciously. And it's the human personalization that allows fingerprints to be unique. There are also like conditions that change the fingerprint depending on where you use, what time zone you're in, what IP address you use, what ISP you use, what kind of ASN, like the system number. It's like your ISP essentially. All of that makes your specific browser different from mine. Even though they're all Chrome 107 on a MacBook Pro 16 inch, they're different for other reasons that you cannot control. Yeah, so let's say I get the unique fingerprint. Let's use big companies. Let's say... Reddit and Twitter, you know, mm -hmm. right? All right, so Twitter, let's say that they are using fingerprint.js even though we don't know. And then Reddit is also doing that. So my browser, if you go to Twitter's developers and you go to Reddit's developers, is it two separate fingerprints even though I'm on the same browser and I signed up to the for both accounts back to back? Yeah, it's a good question. And it is different depending on if you use our open source library or if you use the pro product. With the open source, the fingerprint will be the same whether you, if you use Twitter and then you later used uh, Reddit, the fingerprint will be the same, identical. But it will be in 2022, it will not be accurate enough to uniquely, like, there'll be thousands of or tens of thousands of uh, browsers with the same fingerprint in addition to yours. But it's going to be the same fingerprint. And it's, it's not useful because uh, so many browsers share like the same, like, characteristics and signals. With the pro product, that's much more accurate. We actually built into the product a protection against that. And uh, we scope each browser inside that subscription. So if Twitter, let's say uh, hypothetically, Twitter bought Fingerprint Pro subscription, then the identifier they would get for your browser would be one, two, three, four, five. And then Reddit, if they bought our subscription, the identifier would be ABCDEF because we do some like, you can think of it as XORing or applying a transformation with a customer 
So the fingerprint looks different, even though it's the same fingerprint. And the store information applies the customer domain, for example. This is how we make the fingerprints different for different customers. What's the most common use case that your pro users use this for? Like to prevent fraud, what type of fraud, stuff like that? It's mostly account-based activity, multi-account registration or account sharing, account protection, two-factor authentication, any activity that requires knowing more about the user that's being logged in or signing up to protect this account uh, or to protect the company from like account abuse. So multiple use case, but I guess the most frequent one we see is, is it the same browser that typically logs into this account? So it's a, you probably saw this, like when you, um, when you log into your, let's say Twitter or Reddit account from an unfamiliar browser, they send you a link, like it's a suspicious login. Yeah. How do they do it? They need to fingerprint your browser because they don't know. They fingerprint your typical browser that you typically use. And then if the fingerprint is different, they become suspicious. Something's going on. It's a new browser we have never seen before on this account. Let's send an email just in case this person like is aware that a new lo- new suspicious login. That's a prime example of when browser fingerprinting is used. Or if my browser is logging into like 75 different accounts, it could pick up that. Yeah, all kinds of combinations. It's an unusual browser logging into your account or one fingerprint registering hundreds of accounts, or one fingerprint logging login into hundreds of accounts, very suspicious. Or if one account is being accessed by multiple fingerprints, that means a lot of account sharing. If you bought oh, an yeah. expensive subscription and you share it with all your friends, they log into your subscription, let's say, I don't know, Salesforce, something like that, expensive like SaaS product. You log in there, they log in there too. Uh, Salesforce can see, I see 55 Browser fingerprints login into Joel's account. He's probably account sharing. So that's another example why it's helpful. Interesting. And so this is just a more accurate, reliable way than like other methods, correct? Mostly, yes. Sometimes a username and password is better. So when you need guarantees that I'd like to protect access to this account, then user and password is better. Fingerprint typically is an additional like second factor or additional factor that helps... Uh, to protect your account or helps uh, flag your account for suspicious activity. Cool. Do you like what you do? The definition of what I do changes quite a bit. Like if <laughs> what I did two years ago was very different from what I do now. Uh, I enjoy more engineering and writing code than like doing businessy things. But in general, yes, it's just, uh, I guess uh, I, I'm adjusting to a new reality for me where I need to think more about like business and marketing and hiring and uh all of that. Are you comfortable with that? Is that something that you desire to do or you, you have to do it? How do you see gaining those business skills? Maybe I realized that there is no way around that. I have to do it. I try to structure my work in such a way that it's sustainable in the long run. I don't enjoy maybe uh, like business things as much as I enjoyed like writing Ruby on Rails code yeah. uh, five years ago. But uh, I realized that I need to like continue my work, and I try to structure it in a better way to be more sustainable. Nice. Have you got to meet DHH? No. I know that he probably lives in Chicago, and I know his story, Yeah, but uh, I never met him. And to me, DHH is like a a famous figure that (laughs) I probably will never meet. But uh, yeah, I read about him a lot. Yeah. Yeah, He does a lot of media interviews. You just got to start a podcast and you interview him. Nice. Yeah. 
I, I want to share one thing with you about what we were just discussing as far as different things that I have seen happen in the marketplace from different CTOs that I've talked to over the course of the past couple of years. And one thing that I've seen is I've seen that there's two types of CTOs for this example. There's some that what they do is they start doing the business stuff when they liked doing the engineering stuff. And then they just don't really like the business stuff, but they have to do it. So they keep doing it. And I thought that that was like just part of it, you know, just like suck it up, you know, put on your big boy pants and, and rock and roll. Just like do it, even if you don't like it, get it done. And then I ran into a couple people who were like co founder types so they could do what they wanted, you know, at the company and they weren't just executives or employees. And what some of them did that was super interesting was they created the office of the CTO is the best way I can describe it. And so what they did was they pull a team together of like, you know, five, eight people, like engineers and, and data people, whatever's relevant for their business. Experts, they, they pull in several experts onto a team and they solve problems like within the company or like the next version of the product, like a, like a future thing. They're solving like really tough things and they're like the smartest people there working on these very unique projects. And then they'll hire VP of engineering, director of whatever, and that person will serve as sort of like the figurehead running the engineering side of the organization. Right, they'll be like the personality that everybody's like familiar with, and that's who it is. And then that way, your business will still grow, the business things will still happen, but you get to spend your time doing what you want. And isn't that why we all start business in the first place? Is to have the freedom of of our time. Yeah, I thought about it, and uh, I consider that I think it's possible to do what you described. And uh, I kind of view the journey as a CTO as where I have to participate in the process to make sure the growth is as fast as possible. For some reason, I am very aware, like keenly aware or mindful of my age. I started like later than maybe typical, like uh, technical programmers. I, I bought my first uh, desktop computer when I was like 23 years old. That's when I first like had the computer that I owned. So started later. I want to not waste time essentially uh, and complete things faster. And if I hire like a VP person who is a figurehead, like you explained, will the growth be as fast as uh, when I'm in charge of like technical decisions? Pr probably not. Or maybe it will be and I'm making a mistake. But uh, I'm thinking for now, I'll keep doing this job. And maybe later when the company is bigger, things are more stable. That's when I will create the CTO office with a SWAT of team of five super smart people where we work on future things. Yeah. Now you think that you being involved in the business side of things and doing those tasks will help it grow faster. That's why you're over there focusing on it versus if you had hired someone else and then they were they were involved and it might go slower. Yes, I have a little bit of worry that if I hire someone else and this person will start doing what I'm doing now, there'll be some like reduction in quality or reduction of maybe passion around the process. So now I'm very passionate, like I'm very opinionated about things. And when hiring people, when discussing new projects, when talking to customers, I have my opinion about almost everything when it comes to technology. And if I hire someone to replace me, then it's, I think, impossible to find someone as opinionated as me because I invested my time and I, I want this to succeed badly. 
And this person might not want as much because he's a, he or she is a hired person who just needs to do some KPIs or metrics and meet some like requirements, but not as passionate or as opinionated as I am. DHH is pretty opinionated. <laughs> but reduction in quality is a fear. I guarantee you, you'll never find someone as as passionate as a founder. I mean, that's like your baby, right? Yeah. Very opinionated about the decisions, but do you love it? Do you love that part of it? Do you love the hiring, having to make all these decisions, like all of these businessy things? Do you, it's like if you were to make it binary, do you love it or not? Yes. Because what I'm doing now, A, I have never done before. And this is the only chance in my life where I'm able to do it. If you have a chance to do something that you've never done before, do it because that's probably your only opportunity. I think people sometimes mistakenly think, oh, I'll have another chance to to work on this or I'll, I'll have more time. But life is so short that you typically don't. At least that's how I view it. Like when I got the opportunity to emigrate to the US, I, I grabbed this opportunity really hard because I knew it was probably the only opportunity that I have in my life. And I, and I used it and I immigrated. I came here. Then the opportunity to meet some investors and raise capital for fingerprint. I grabbed this opportunity again because I don't know if I have another opportunity. So I want to use it. And because I don't want to lose that opportunity, I love it because I know that maybe this is the only time when I can can actually do that and participate in something that then I will enjoy thinking about when I'm old. Most people aren't like that. Why are you like that? Maybe I recognize uh, a rare opportunity when I see it. Like, again, using immigration to the US. I applied for the American visa 11 times and got 11 rejections. So when I got, when it worked... 12th time, I recognize that it's not a typical thing that happens to me. It's a crazy luck that I'm seeing. I need to, I need to pursue it. And when some investors or people want to work with me, I view it as not as like, I'm entitled to have this. I view it as a, oh, I'm so lucky it happened. I, I, I got to use that right now today. That's how I think about it. Were your parents like that? How do you think you picked that up? Do you think it's just embedded in you, like in your DNA? Or did you see it, this behavior growing up? I don't know. I grew up without a father. So my mom, she she worked as a, like a very standard, like family, nothing, not, not, nothing like unusual about it. So was she driven? Did she work really hard to raise you and uh, you have no, siblings? Not really. No? <laughs> no. So if you were to think back and try to figure out where your drive came from, what would the answer be? I think it's a combination of things. When I grew up, it's just a lot of hardship. So we moved around. We had to like flee from a country with a civil war in it and uh, were refugees. And it's it's been a lot of hardships. And maybe that kind of fostered that feeling of here's an opportunity, opportunity you need to use it. Yeah, 100%. I equate my drive back to as a child I was hit by a car and I was in a wheelchair for a year and I had to go through the process of learning how to walk again and then halfway through that process I fell and I rebroke one of my legs and I had to start essentially all over you know and and then your muscles and your legs will atrophy and then you just it's a long road back to like walking again and while I'm fine now, those years, it taught me a lot like about being humble when you have to have someone else help you go to the bathroom, like when you know, you're dependent on these other people and then you're doing the rehab stuff and it's just such a slow process. So I learned some patience there, some like never give up 
humbleness there, for lack of a better term, some persistence, and then how to be humble. Because I'll tell you what, someone helping you go to the bathroom is will humble you up real fast. <laughs> yeah, makes sense. <laughs> yeah. So that was like the big moment for me. Like that was like my first moment. So I was like tw- age 12, 13. And then I think the next really big one in my life was before I started this show, I think it was like around 27, I'm 34 now. It's like around 27, my mom had a stomach ache. She went to the doctor and she found out she had cancer and they said she has a couple years and then six weeks later she died. And I got to be in the room. It was a very good thing that I got to be in the room. I was holding her hand. I was with my siblings. And it was that moment that I actually understood the concept that life is finite. And I said, okay, this is fixed. And like you hear it all the time, right? You constantly hear it, right? You know, you have one life, all this stuff. And, but there was just something, I don't have a word for it. There was just something about that moment. And I just said, I'm going to try like a lot harder. Like I'm going to get up tomorrow and I'm going to try the hardest I've ever tried. And then I'm going to get up the next day and I'm going to do it again. And then I'm just going to keep going. So I'm always interested when I meet people who are doing really great things and it's difficult what you're doing. Running a company with you know 100 plus people is a difficult thing. You mentioned a couple times success, right? You said you wanted to be successful. You want What is your definition of success? When I think about my time going back that I didn't waste it, my finite time, and that I didn't waste it is I used the opportunities that I had. I worked in something that I enjoyed and I remained truthful to myself, like the only thing I value is how I think about myself myself in the world. And if I am not violating the rules that I have created for me in my life, I'm truthful to myself. It means I lived well and uh, used the opportunities that were presented to me. What are some of those rules? <laughs> well, they are like uh, typical things. Uh, don't try to be who you are not. Explain that a little bit more to me. I think uh, it's important to really understand what you want, why you wanting something. Do you want this to impress someone or you want this for different reasons? And once you have, like there is this Latin, Latin phrase, like cognoscite ipsum, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, which is know yourself. I think 99% of being successful in life is understanding yourself first. You need to realize who you are, what you want. Once you do that, every single decision becomes easier because you know why you want to do certain things, not to impress someone or do some, something that other people expect from you, but for other reasons, because you want to, you know what you want, you know who you are and you know which things are important to you. I love that. You want me to share my two things? Yeah. So I've, I've thought about this a lot. I like to watch people grow. That includes my kids, my wife, my family, myself. Like I like watching stages of growth and maturity and I like being useful to other people. Mm. And those two things are like, if I had, if as long as I'm doing those two things, whether I'm rich or poor, whatever happens, as long as I'm doing those two things, I'm, I'm accomplishing the things that fill me up inside. Being useful is a very great thing, which I'm only learning to kind of ingrain or internalize. I think it comes with age, the desire to be useful. And I haven't reached that point yet. How old are you? I'm 41, but I I still have a lot of things to work on in terms of like personal development. Man, dude, this is great. You are crushing this podcast. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) This is really good, man. What other things we've got about like 
10 minutes or so, we need to do a call to action. Do you push people at your library at the open source version first, or do you say just come straight to the paid one and do a free trial of it? Oh, I don't. If they heard about it, if they want, they will, they will do it. Yeah, I'll do it. Go download Fingerprint.js. No, this is great though. All right. I'm kind of personally curious about how do you pay people when they're in like multiple countries? I don't know if we want to talk about that, but sure. I've always been kind of curious about it because I think it's a lot of paperwork and maybe there's a service that does it or something. Yeah, we started doing that directly through regular wire transfers. So you, you create your bank account and then you pay people that you work with through the wire transfer. But that can be problematic and uh, come with its own issues. So we switched to using a service like remote.com to pay contractors in other countries. For the US, uh, we started being the employer directly. Our company, Fingerprint.js, was the employer for the US team members. But then because of the compliance burden and having people from so many states and having to maintain all that paperwork, we switched to employer of record, EOR. I think it's called a company that uh, does all the compliance and paperwork for us and technically is an employer for those team members that work in the United States and we just pay to the company. And this makes things so much easier, especially in the U.S. because in the U.S. you need to have all your team members as employees and that comes with an additional like paperwork and compliance burden that you don't want to spend your time because you want to run the business. When did you decide that you were going to be fully remote? It was from the from the very beginning. The company, my co-founder, uh, he joined in January of uh, 2020. Uh, next month, the uh, COVID-19 broke out. So our first hire happened in July of 2020. So by this time, COVID will have been going on for five months already. So by this time, when we hired our first person, kind of didn't think about like office or hiring someone in the office. We thought we just continue working remotely. And then it continued like that. All the new people, they were in Europe and like elsewhere. And we never considered really that we would have an office because of COVID. And when the COVID was over, the company size was already like 50 people or 60 people. So we built, we, by this time we have built the core, the difficult core of like how to think about working together, how to communicate effectively, how to talk to each other how to expect replies, when to expect replies from team members. We have internalized and built that understanding of a truly remote culture. And when the COVID was, was over, we already learned how to be remote and we didn't see any imperative to, to switch from being remote to being a non-remote company. So this business has grown to over 100 people in two years? Yes. Actually, yeah, two years since July. Our first hire was in July, so it's been like two years and uh, four months. That is amazing. Did you are you raising capital? Is it just natural cash flow growth? How are you doing it? Yeah, we we closed three rounds: uh, seed, Series A, and Series B. Seed and A were in twenty twenty. Series B was in twenty twenty one in October. That's my least favorite thing, by the way. I raised a round of capital. I raised half a million dollars when I started, and the going around and like asking for money from people for me personally i found that like if i took that time and instead like i disliked it you know talk about disliking something and knowing yourself i did it once and i pushed through and i continued to actually have done it and then i'm like nope 
I'm not doing this. And I'd mm-hmm. rather spend my time being on customer calls trying to make sales because it takes a lot of work. It takes a ton of work and you have it's a whole nother it's like a whole nother profession to learn to raise capital and to do it well and to speak their language and to follow the trends and align with those and it's a lot of work. So I commend you on that my friend. You've done 3 rounds. That's a that is that's a oh, massive amount of work. Mostly uh, almost all of the work was done by my co-founder. He is great oh, really? at, yeah, he's amazing at uh, raising uh, capital and uh, that's his, his results essentially. But I don't, I, I cannot say I don't enjoy it because I view it as selling your vision. Yeah. When you talk to customers, you need to sell your product. When you talk to investors, you need to sell your company. It's selling in both cases. It's just a different scale of, of the sales process, but you act as a seller in this uh, transaction. So I think these are actually the same. Yeah, yeah they are. Personally, I just don't like it. <laughs> I don't like it. And I, I agree that selling, isn't it crazy? So you were an engineer and you had to learn sales skills like me. I've only started learning sales skills about five years ago. And it has helped in every aspect of my life, from my relationship with my wife to interacting with friends. And it's not about being manipulative, but it's about understanding patterns and how things happen and how people agree on ideas and how you can figure out what somebody wants and you can help them achieve what they want. And those types of skills have been so incredibly valuable to me. I didn't pick those up while I was writing code and building software engineering teams, but I definitely picked them up in an intentional way when learning sales. Yeah, I agree with you. I think sales process is explaining people what they already know so that they understand it better. Once you realize that, the sales process becomes easier. You need to be patient, clear about what you want to achieve, but eventually it's explaining what they already know. What was the hardest thing about learning sales skills? Overcoming being shy, like as an introvert, it's very difficult. So I did several dozen sales and every time I I need to kind of think about it. I'm doing it not because I'm an extroverted person, but because I wanted to grow the business, do the business development. I want to help this business. I want to help them understand how they can improve their revenue. And this requires overcoming your like introvertness. I, I, I don't know how to say it, like your shyness, I guess that's yeah. the hardest part. Yeah, that's how, that's. I agree. That was one of the drivers for me starting the show, right? To get to build other relationships and to get to talk to more people and get better at speaking. And then slowly, episode by episode, you just get more shy. And then I look back at myself and I'm like, whoa, it doesn't feel like you've come very far. But if you watch videos of me, like, <laughs> you know, year one or the first couple episodes, it's a lot different. So speaking of sales calls, these people are not a sponsor that I'm going to mention here. But we started using them last week and it's pretty sweet and it's called Wingman, like trywingman.com. So it like records the sales calls and then it like analyzes and it gives you a bunch of interesting feedback. And so I was like, all right, I'll try it. And I tried it and then I was like, this is actually really cool. And then I bought it for my team. Again, mm-hmm. not a sponsor or anything, but do you guys record your sales calls? Have you have you played with that technology yet? Yeah, we've gone. Gone I IO, yeah. Yep, Gong's like the main competitor to them. Yeah, so it's great, isn't it? Isn't it fantastic, it all is, the insights you get? I like the transcribing ability, searching oh. in the transcribed text. I agree with you, yeah. Yeah, dude. I, well, I'm just excited because I, I didn't know those things existed until like two weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to leave people with a couple things. The first thing is go download Fingerprint, go get your fingerprint, right? And the second thing is I want you to share 
the best piece of leadership advice that you've ever like received and put into action and it's like useful to you? I would like to emphasize the importance of realizing how finite the time is, that even when you're young and healthy, you might just lose your motivation in the future and you have less time, not because the life is finite, but because you become disinterested in the future. That's why my biggest advice would be grab the opportunity while it exists. I think a leader of the business should never lose opportunities to grow their business. Every single chance to grow the business should be should be used. Doesn't matter what it is. Marketing, sales, networking, product, engineering. You should use try to use every single opportunity and never lose the chance. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.